I'm here with Javier Sade, who is the former head of the SBIC program and managed a $30 billion portfolio. Uh, just stopping there is impressive, but that is even cover half, maybe not even a tenth of his career. So from Puerto Rico and his career has just been this amazing track through starting off at Abbott, going to Booz, uh, Booz Allen, then going to McKinsey, starting his own business, going to HBS, going to a multi-billion dollar asset manager, working in frontier markets. Uh, then kind of shifted into the public policy realm, uh, working with the SBIC program, worked at Bridgewater a little bit before that, uh, and now you're on five or seven boards as well as you started your own company. So I don't even know where to start, but I guess let's just start like, where are you from and how did we get down this journey? Uh, I, I think I look much better on paper than I do in real life. Um, but a lot of people would say that's kind of a confused, kind of squiggly line pathway. Yeah, I grew up in Puerto Rico, regular, uh, I would say regular, pretty standard upbringing. Uh, went to a Catholic school down there and then my parents were always all about education and I ended up going to Purdue in Indiana, which is in fact the exact opposite of Puerto Rico in terms of weather, in terms of beaches, in terms of everything else. What did you study at Purdue? I wanted to start as an aeronautical engineer, but I ended up pretty quickly switching to industrial management and manufacturing engineering. I was very intrigued with making things and operating things and doing things. And then, okay, so we have a lot to fill in in between industrial engineering and investor. Let's go to the next thing. So when you look at the consulting stage of your life, what were you really focused on? So I think, um, like in any career, your foundational years are all about being a sponge. Uh, in other words, learning, absorbing, hopefully not screwing up. And if you do screw up, because I do think there's a, there's a place for actually falling every so often, because that's how you really learn, um, is about learning. So I think my, my foundational years, and those were Abbott, Labs, Booz Allen and Hamilton and McKinsey and company, we're all about getting a, a strong foundation and strong pillars to what then ended up happening. But I didn't know what the then was. I mean, I always, people say that they have a plan or that they know exactly where they're going. I'm not, I was never one of those people and to this day I'm not. I know I have like a true north, but in terms of the early parts of my career, we're all, we're all about learning, uh, learning as much as I could. What, what has been that true north for maybe this and the last chapter? I mean, did you, has it been the same true north since day one at Abbott? Yeah, well, I think um, there's a, and I think this is not unusual for, I would say most, then I was young, but young ambitious people, and that is that you wanna perform, and you wanna succeed. So the thing I cared about the most in the early days of my career was as long as, long as I stayed inside the edge, I wanted to give it 300%. That hasn't changed. I'm driven by doing the best job I can in whatever situation I'm in. Um, as time has passed, uh, while my values haven't really changed, I'm able to articulate them more because of the passage of time. So for example, um, my portfolio of activities now are all of them things that I can be absolutely proud of and are aligned with my values. Not to say that a consulting engagement 
with a large multinational client and McKinsey was not aligned with my values, but I was doing that for a different reason. So I think that, um, that, that the passage of time has put things into focus. And I now, with the passage of time comes experience, um, I'm able to be more picky and choosy with the stuff I do. On the phone you were talking about time plus reflection or whatever, I, what did <laughs> yeah. you mention on the phone? Yeah, uh, comedy is a simple addition, additive formula. It's tragedy plus time. And if you look at the very best comedians, for example, in my opinion, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Al Franken, who is yeah. somebody, who is who I got that from, who was uh, somebody that worked with me in my first startup. Um, he's the one I learned it from. And when you think about it, comedy is in fact tragedy plus time. And I do believe that. I think, I think in retrospect, I mean, people say hindsight is twenty twenty, or uh, I saw that coming, or my gut told me this, but my head told me that, so I went with my head, but I should have listened to my gut. At the end of the day, I think that even in this fast 24-7, everything at your fingertips is day and age, I think the passage of time enables you to get experiences. Somebody can tell you that the stove is hot and not to touch it, but the best learning that you can have about a stove being hot is touching it. It's painful, but unequivocally, you will not touch it again after you touch a hot stove. Okay, well this is begging the question. <laughs> so what are the, some of the tragedies in <laughs> your life yeah. that are now you know, now comedy. I mean, what are some of yeah. the famous failures of your life? One of my mentors to this day uh, said that in the in the business world, and I think this is true of your personal life, like you you want a bad kind of fifty one forty nine. Fifty one being being more hits than more hits and fouls or strikes, but not that many more. And the reason you want to keep them close together is because the more you want to have a lot of little failures. Uh, near-death experiences. I mean, you don't want to go off a cliff and explode, uh, but you want to get pretty close to the edge and maybe fall down to the first ledge underneath the main ledge. One of the experiences that felt like the world was falling apart where was my first company. I founded a company that uh, whose premise was to actually deliver talk radio, which became actually one of the first podcasts on Apple and on iTunes and all this stuff. It ended up being a really amazing experience, and that's Air America, uh, which I ended up selling to a group and I stayed on. Uh, so I basically hired myself out of a job. It ended up being a commercial failure for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was too asset heavy because we, we wanted to own the pipes. I think that we, want, we wanted a 24-7 programming slate and that was expensive. So in retrospect, a lot of problems, but the company went through a lot of tribulations and back, you know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I was relatively young. Not to say that if you're listening to this in your late 20s and early 30s, <laughs> you, can't succeed. Uh, you can't succeed. But I was, I felt I was green. And it, when I was in the middle of the storm, um, it felt like, oh, my career's gonna be over, I have a failure, and I, I was very concerned. But it didn't, once, again, you separate yourself with time, you realize how valuable a learning experience that was, you know. I would have rather not have gone through that, but in retrospect, I think that made me a better manager, a better person, a more deliberate thinker. You've been around so many entrepreneurs in this 25-plus you know, year career, you being an owner-operator, 
you investing, you advising in startups, early stage, mature businesses. Um, what do you think are some of the common threads mm -hmm. of successful entrepreneurs? And what do you think are the commonalities of those who had potential but never succeeded? <laughs> Take that one, however you want to start that. That's a good question. Um, so I think in business, there are kind of three main buckets as to how you get involved with any kind of commercial endeavor. One is as an owner or as an intermediary to owners, and those are like private equity firms. They're intermediaries. The ultimate owners are the pension funds and the things that actually invest in their intermediary. You manage or manage, you manage a business or manage pieces of it, so you're an operator, or you're an advisor, investment bankers, lawyers, accountants, so on and so forth. Um, the common thread to success, I'm actually gonna go to a book which has been one of my favorite books of all time. It's actually a self-help book. I don't know what that says about me, but it's called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Pack. And in that book, he posits that uh, at least what I got out of it is that the people that achieve real happiness in life, and that could be for some people success in business, are people that can deal with two things. One, curves on the road, because there's always going to be curves on the road. And two, resiliency and flexibility. Um, so to your exact question, which I'm not answering, but I will now, I think that for entrepreneurs or for investors, when it's some investments go south, so how do you fix them? Or if you're a manager in a big company, some strategic plan is not happening, um, is the ability to actually pivot smartly when needed and being reading the situation and understanding that you really can't control much in life. Even though we tell ourselves we can, the bottom line is that uh, there are some things that you cannot control. And those things you cannot control, um, you shouldn't spend any energy on. Now that's very much easier said than done, right? Because if you're an entrepreneur building, and I just got off the phone, I was telling you earlier, I just got off the phone with, a, with the CEO, chairman and CEO of a, one of these multi-unicorn uh, companies. Brilliant guy, building an amazing business. He's gonna be really successful, um, but he's sitting into snacks and he wanted some kind of quiet advice. And the only advice I gave him was that you're always gonna run into snags. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is how you deal with the snags. So you can't get bogged down with the fact that your plan didn't happen or that, uh, or that the goal you intended to achieve you didn't achieve because a lot of the times that that happens, you actually had no control over it. So once you realize that that's the case, I think that makes you a better entrepreneur or manager, investor, anything you want. So are there, talking. how do you develop that adaptability, that resiliency, aside from just falling flat on your face time and time again? Are there, is there a less painful route yes, to develop there is. resiliency? There is, there is, there is learning by doing or learning on the job or whatever you want to call it cannot be substituted with learning by being advised or learning by reading or learning by whatever you you learn how to ride a bike by actually eventually taking the training wheels off you can learn that the equilibrium is in the ear and that whatever but I think that there's 
I could have been a better entrepreneur in my first go around if I would have listened to advice. Uh, so I think surrounding yourself with mentors that fill your weak spots. I mean, now everyone I admit to them. And if we admit to him, we admit to him as I would what's your biggest weakness? Well, I'm too energetic and yeah. I can't sleep because I'm working BS. on that. Yes, that's not a weakness. A weakness could be that I actually have trouble uh, getting in front of a, if you're an entrepreneur, getting in front of an investor and pitching my idea that for the 32 seconds that the investor has to actually pay attention to you. Well, shore up that shortcoming with advice and, and getting better. But sometimes when you're... I think when you're younger, it was the case in my in my case, I thought I could do anything. And you as the more the, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know, even to this day. Like we actually don't know that much. You just do whatever you can with uh, with whatever information you have. What do you think that your superpower is? <laughs> and what would you say, if you're willing, is your super weakness? Yeah, I'm totally willing. Um, my genealogy alone is very diverse. I got Lebanese, I got German, I got Spanish, and then I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I went to college in Indiana, and my first job out of college was managing hourly employees, making things in a third shift. Uh, and then I've been in boardrooms of, you know, Fortune 10 companies. I mean, you're on the board of... Well, now I'm, I'm on a few. I'm, I'm on a. I'm on a few. Uh, I'm on a few boards. Um, but even as a as a consult as an early consultant, I can't say the name of the client. Yeah. Uh, but it was a massive, massive like Fortune 10 company, and I was sitting there, you know, 28 year old sitting there with the chairman and CEO of the company. But the point I'm saying all this is because I think, and I don't know if this is a superpower, but it definitely I think helps me appreciate perspectives and empathize with people is that. Uh, the combination of being able to talk to somebody in the factory floor or the chairman and CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world or in the case of I was never a government person and there I was in a sub-cabinet position trying to make my case to the Congress of the United States appointed by the President of the United States and then the next day I'm getting toner for my printer in my start. So my, my, my point of all this is that I think that because I've had this sort of squiggly line career that has not forced me but enabled me to actually deal with people of all stripes people of all sorts colors gender literally everything um uh i'm able to uh listen and internalize uh on what is very difficult things and information to synthesize into uh simple bite-sized chunks um and I think in the, you know, when, when you're investing, um, there's a craft to it that comes with, you know, evaluating, a, if you're doing private equity, you're evaluating the, you know, the quality of earnings or the cash flow or the EBITDA, and is the management team good? And uh, is their customer base diversified enough? You know, so on and so forth when you're doing due diligence on buying a company, but there are some qualitative things that I think are just as important, you know, reading somebody's strength of character or reading somebody's uh, honesty with themselves or, or the best thing somebody can ever answer, even if they know the answer to the question, is I don't know. And the reason I don't know is actually a great answer is because 
it, it, it forces you to engage. So I think that that's a very long answer to your question. So I think you're, it sounds like there are a couple of superpowers here. One being <laughs> the ability to relate to all different types of people, which has come from a variety of your background with education, your ethnicity, where you're from, where you went to school, working in all different types of companies, when you're a consultant having to work with all different industries, up and down the management ring, and then as an investor, working with the SBIC, you're, it's a, it, the superpower has been forged over the career to being someone who can just relate to anyone. And it sounds like the other superpower is the ability to actually synthesize that to make accurate, seasoned, um, give accurate and seasoned advice based upon all of that background. I mean, that, that's a great way to put a finer point on all that I just <laughs> talked about. I mean, the, the, I'll tell you an experience uh, with, with uh, when I when I ran the SBIC program, which is a program for those that don't know. What is the 60-second history and summary of the SBIC program? So before there was anything uh, called venture capital or private equity in 1958, that's when Eisenhower was president, uh, a small program at the Small Business Administration was developed to essentially provide risk capital to the economy. And now risk capital to the economy is for the most part provided in the private markets by venture capital, private equity, structure lending funds, MES, mezzanine lending and stuff like that. So if you fast forward to today, that program has had different iterations, but essentially it provides with fund level leverage to funds so that they can invest in more businesses. And it's actually a program that has worked for 60 plus years. Um, there's been more than 2,000 funds since his, in the history of the program that have been licensed as SBICs. Today, there's about 310 pro, uh, funds that are licensed as SBICs. And generally, I think that the, the liquid markets have 3,000, so like 10% of all funds are SBICs. All of them are small. Um, and all of them available. How big is how big is small? Is it under five hundred? The the well the funds can be any size, but for you to avail yourself of the most leverage, uh, I think no more than two twenty five. So most funds right now are kind of in the eighty to one hundred twenty five million dollar range, uh, and it's a program that works for America because more money is going to smaller businesses, and you know as capital pools get bigger and bigger writing small checks is much harder. So the SBIC is a program that actually helps society because small businesses are the backbone of society. The most famous small businesses are in the Bay Area. Everybody loves to talk about the startup world, but those are only like 50,000 companies out of 30 million small businesses in the United States. Um, the other benefit is for the managers of the funds and their investors, so for GP and LPs, you can leverage your equity capital, whatever LPs put up, with fund level debt at basically treasury plus a spread. So if you think about a, you know, a good private equity firm will triple their money, generally, let's say. Um, so if you turn 100 into 300, um, if that 100 million was all LP money, you would owe the LP 100 plus 80% of the ups, and then you get 20. But in the SBIC program, to manage 100, you can theoretically only have to raise a third of it because the others, to 33.3 to 3, and the other 
66.66 million is actually fund level debt all you need to do is pay a coupon and the money back to the SBA who collateralizes these things into into debentures that are sold in the in the capital markets and if you triple the fund down back to that example if you triple 100 into 300 you really tripled 33.333 of equity right so your return on equity with leverage is how banks work for example um, is almost 10 times, right? You turn 33 into 300, now you pay the SBA and whatever, but basically you get a juice on the returns on essentially a pretty interesting uh, financial vehicle. Man, I, this can go in a lot of directions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Start first with, with your tenure as the head of the SBIC program, managing $30 billion, and how many managers? Hundreds. Hundreds of GPs. How the heck did you sort through those? Well, uh, there was a big, very capable, uh, and very committed team that worked there, all consummate professionals that are just like any other LP, pension fund, or business. They evaluate managers, track records, cohesion of the team, and things like that. Um, so I was just a part. I happened to have sat in that highest seat, but I was just a part of a very well-oiled machine. In your role assessing many different mm -hmm. GPs, I can see the need to have diversity. But let's say you're in a, a, a business where you're investing in a very narrow niche. Do you actually need diversity as opposed to um, diversity of uh, race, gender, thought? Or it's like, no, I, I'm gonna hire the people who've done this for 20 years in the exact same background, we're all gonna do the same thing because we're only investing in one industry. And I don't, in that structure, I don't need to be complex and diverse. Or is that... Yeah, yeah. But, or, or, <laughs> is that needed? No, it's, an int it's actually an interesting question. And as this whole diversity and inclusion uh, movement, which I think is very positive, uh, diversity and inclusion very broadly defined, uh, disabilities, gender, racial background, you know, all that stuff. There's a darker side to it, which is if you end up going down that construct, you end up relegated to crumbs, right? Emerging manager programs, which I think uh, some of the people you have interviewed before have availed themselves of, are great programs because without them, you're too small to get a big check from, a, from one of these large pension yeah. funds. But what happens is that you become almost part of a set-aside. Um, you can say the same thing about Silicon Valley, right? There's all these black and brown managed funds that invest in black and brown businesses, but that's like a couple billion dollars out of hundreds of billions. So do you want the cookie or are you going to be relegated to crumbs? So to your question, I think what needs to happen in my head is that the argument about diversity and inclusion is no longer about social justice. Well, the people graduating college are now more women than men. Yep. That is true, unassailable for sure. So what? So what does that mean? Well, well, we need to hire more women. Okay, great. But what's the business case? And I think where we're where we're starting to turn the corner on in the last, I would say, five years, is that the argument is going from one of social justice to one of economic imperative. You see, you're seeing it with ESG, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, all of them committing together trillions of dollars to strategies that started as do-gooder, hugging trees, yeah. diversity things, when in reality... The data is out and that it's saying, no, you're, you're, you're gonna make more you money. You can make more money. 
Are there any specific studies that was like a landmark case study that yeah. showed that? Catalyst is an organization that is focused on putting more women on yeah. boards. Yeah. And they do studies on the ROE, ROIC, uh, you know, accretive shareholder, you know, shareholder earnings, dividend growth, and all that stuff. And it turns out that boards with at least one woman on the board, and they do it with one, two, and three. The more women on the board, the better their numbers on a sale. That's empirically easy public companies. If you go into the private markets, which is a little more obscure and, and less transparent, um, the numbers that very well run either minority-owned funds or funds that have at least one woman or minority in the group are in fact over-delivering on their benchmarks, unassailable. And I, from the SBIC perspective, we did, I actually commissioned a study by the Library of Congress to look at dollars that were, and this is probably one of the best bodies of knowledge because you're talking about 2,000 funds over 60 years that have put yeah. $100 billion into hundreds of thousands of small businesses in the United States. And we looked at, well, businesses that had at least one minority in the management team or were owned by minorities or women or funds that had at least one principal who was a woman or minority. And you actually see numbers that are at least as good, in many cases, better. So there's all kinds of empirical things. And this is not to say that women are better than men or that minorities are better than than uh, Caucasians. No, it's to say that a more diverse group, if you are good, delivers higher alpha. And you are seeing it in a lot of the kind of the new crop. If you look, if you think about private equity and venture capital, you know, when you think about kind of the big, very large firms and asset managers like KKR, Blackstone, yeah. all these places, they're actually not putting up the best numbers. Um, but they're uh, they put very good numbers up, no, no question. But they're not, if you're looking for true, the very best, you actually gotta widen the aperture. And the reason, you know, there was an adage that said that nobody gets fired for hiring IBM, just like nobody gets fired for hiring McKinsey yeah. for a consulting job. But nobody gets, no LP gets fired for putting money to work in a Blackstone. I'm not Blackstone. saying anything bad about those places. I know a lot of people in those places. But I think that if you're truly committed to finding the very best investors, maybe you gotta look a little differently. And if you look at this new crop of, they're not that small anymore, but funds like Clear Lake, Vista, these are multi-wood. There's a good, you know, there's yeah. two handfuls of them that are just knocking the cover off the ball. And they've had enough, they're on like fund three plus, where three the plus. data is in there. Three, four, five, six, seven. Vista, I don't know how much money they got on yeah. the management, but it's like tens and tens of billions of dollars doing all kinds of things. It has nothing to do with, and I think and I think Robert Smith will say, and probably Jose Feliciano and clearly will say that they don't want to be known as a black investor. They want to be known, or a Hispanic investor. They want to be known as a damn good investor who happens to be well, black or brown. Who cares? But I think to your point is that sometimes the muscle memory and the pattern recognition puts blinders on you. Are there things in your life that you have consciously done on a regular basis to make sure that yes, you are building muscle memory, but you're still allowing things that are tangential mm -hmm. to come into your, to get divergent thinking? 
that's a really good question. My wife is actually much better about goals. New Year's, I'm gonna read 18 books this year. I'm gonna do 2,000 miles on the Peloton, blah, 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 whatever it is. I'm doing more of that, like actually putting exact goals on a, my personal life. Like I'm a runner by, I love running and I love uh, hiking and skiing and scuba diving. Like I'm a very action oriented person. I'm getting much older, so I have to get away from running. So one of the goals I have for this year is actually becoming a better triathlete. So I'm switching from marathons to triathlons, which is different muscle, different muscle memory and stuff like that. And I'm doing it out of self-preservation because my knees just can't last that long, but also it's forcing me to learn new things. Um, in the case of reading, I only used to read business books. It could be uh, finance books or startup books or whatever, but now I'm reading things like, I'll tell you what I'm reading right now, it's something called The Elephant Brain, I forgot the name of the author, which has to do all about how people think in the context of us being animals. So it's a psychology yeah. book. Nothing to do with business, but systematically force myself to learn and do things that are not purposely things I'm comfortable with. In the past one to three years, what is something that you have done that has genuinely made you feel uncomfortable or scared, but you're consciously doing it? So for example, uh, last year, I woke up one morning on a Wednesday and I was like, I'm doing stand-up comedy tonight. <laughs> I texted my buddy, he's like, you know this club you're going to? He's like, it's a legit club. I'm like, nope. <laughs> but tonight, I'm going to do it. Uh, so what is something that you've done that has been, has made you feel uncomfortable or even scared to do? We went to Indonesia in November. And we spent a little bit of time in Bali. And Bali is one of the cradles of yoga. I've done yoga five times in my life. And my wife, it, this is like learning how to mountain climb in Mount Everest, right? Yeah. You Learning how to do yoga in Bali. So we went to the best yoga place, it's called the Yoga Barn in Ubud, which is the, the cultural center of Bali. It's an amazing, magical place. And I started getting into yoga. I'm horrible. I can't bend, everything hurts. But then when we got home, we're like, well, we're in a gym and we're like, well, how do we, I wanna really try and get better at yoga, which scares me, right? Because you're, you're surrounded by everybody's wearing Lululemon or Athleta. Everybody <laughs> looks like they're what they're doing. I'm there like, I don't know what I'm doing. And we joined, actually, here's not a plug for that, for a, what is a very interesting company, ClassPass, where you actually buy some credits and you can use them on yeah. different gyms and whatever. So over the last, and I know, because I keep track of it, over the last two months, I went to 17 different classes from rowing to boxing to yoga, mostly yoga, to see if I would get better. And it's easily immeasurable. So I guess I'm pretty scared of actually <laughs> doing yoga because I look like ridiculous, but it makes me feel better because I'm doing something different and it actually changes the way I think. So when you were uh, the head of the SBIC program, you looked at hundreds of managers. How can GPs effectively stand out? Um, everybody says they have proprietary deal flow. Everybody says they have a good track record. Everybody says they got team cohesion. Everybody has an angle. But if you don't know how to tell the story accordingly, uh, you are gonna have a hard time uh, raising money. And that could be as a GP, or that could be as an entrepreneur. If you're asking somebody to write you a check, 
you gotta have a pretty succinct story of why you. So not the what, but the why. And I think that's very, very hard to do. And good stories are, I mean, you may think something's a good story, I may think something's a bad story and vice versa, but I think it's about really crafting a compelling reason or compelling story as to why you. Is there a particular story uh, that you can think of, you feel comfortable sharing, that really stood out to you and just one that you will always remember? They were extremely focused on their, their community, industrial Midwest, and they had a really good thesis that actually is proving itself out with Revolution and uh, Steve Case's uh, Rise of the Rest Fund, and some of these other funds that are popping up in places that are not where we're sitting now in Midtown Manhattan or California or Boston, that there's all kinds of opportunities in other places. And they made a really compelling case that we were not, we were missing alpha because we were not investing in XYZ. And that stood out to me. And it stood out to me because usually people go, well, I'm going to look for something that's easy to visualize, like Latinos in California. I'm going to invest in Latinos in California, Latino in businesses in California. Well, okay, I can figure that out. But to make a compelling story around second and third tier cities that are having a tough time uh, keeping up, making a case that making good investments and capitalizing some of the companies in these places are actually good not only for business, but for society. And if you ever look at this, you'll know who you are. <laughs> um, so let's kind of zoom out. You know, when you look at your 25 plus year career, what one piece of advice would you give the 25 year old version of yourself? Talk less, listen more. And that's why I haven't said another word. I'm trying it right now. <laughs> there we go. On a similar note, in looking at the arc of your career as an industrial engineer, a consultant, going to the schools that you did, including HBS, top tier consulting firms, going to Bridgewater, going to another asset manager, Jim, which a couple billion under management, um, and then managing the SPIC programs portfolio. What's your why? Like, what is the motivation? I think we're always on the quest for that answer. Um, why? I mean, you can get closer to it. It's asymptotic, like to use a mathematical term. Like, it's the line that gets really close to the other line but never really touches it. And I think time passage gets you closer to the line, and that line being the why. Um, but I think. The one thing I have figured out that um, that has been true throughout, but now I'm much more conscious of, is that I just want to feel good as a person about what I'm doing. Everything I do now has to be aligned with things I care about. Clean environment, having as many voices on the table as humanly possible, financial inclusion, ensuring that the future of work works for everyone, ensuring that technology is actually used for good, not for bad, AI specifically. Things that I believe should inform the world as it should be. As time has gone on, I've gotten better and better at figuring that out. I don't know if I'll ever have the answer, but I think I'm figuring it out as I go. What's next for you?
you've had this amazing career, so why not? Just be like, you're right. making it sound like I'm done. Goodbye. I'm moving to Bali and I'm going to go do yoga yeah. seven days a week. That's what I want to do. <laughs> no, I think I'll get bored uh, unless I become like a master yogi, but that's not going to happen. Well, I'm a little bit ADD and I think that shows in kind of the pivots I've done in my career and my background and that ADD has actually been a big part of who I am. So I'm, I have built a collection uh, of opportunities and the things I spend time on now that best leverage that. So um, I'm a venture partner in a FinTech venture capital fund called Fenway Summer. It's a great group of people, amazing companies and portfolio. Uh, I invest my own money in my own little vehicle and every time I do a deal I invite people and it's things I care about and I love and it's all kinds of different things from media companies to financial companies to everything in between. And then I sit on, on, on a few boards uh, which gives me the ability to actually not have to be in the day-to-day -day of a business but helping. I love being a a bouncing board of somebody that's probably much smarter than I am and like I love surrounding myself with people that are genuinely smarter than me because they keep me on my toes but also because I learn from them and I think in an advisory capacity like board seats are pretty interesting ways to deliver value without having to take the controls um, so I see you know as as time progresses I see myself potentially serving on a few more boards um, what do you think is potentially a, starting another company? I'm in no rush to actually figure exactly out what that is. I'm very happy with the collection of stuff I have now. What do you think makes an effective board member and an ineffective board member? In earlier in my career, when I held board seats, you have a penchant for action. So making sure that there's a clear distinction be between executive power and governance is critical. So I think that not being active in the day-to-day -day management, but ensuring that all of the systems are in place so that once you ex you're going to execute is doable. So I think effective board members know the line. And in the case of startups where board members are much more active, and I've been on the board of several startups, um, board members are actually much more active, but there's a line, right? There's a very clear line. You don't want to take executive power. Uh, you want to listen, you want to have a collaborative situation. I think in the, in the situation of closely held companies like private equity or venture capital owned companies as opposed to public companies which are held by millions of people, you end up in a situation where sometimes the funds dictate how things go and that sometimes is detrimental to creating value at the company. There's also an inherent conflict between being a fiduciary for your fund and being a fiduciary of a board of your portfolio company because sometimes the interests of those two things diverge. I think ineffective board members are pretty easy to spot. They don't, they only show up to the meetings, they don't contribute a lot of thought, they're not engaged, they're not keeping up with the business, but there are some clear governance sort of control things that a board do to ensure a com company or a nonprofit or whatever the organization is is in a, on a sure-footed path it becomes less of a of a management uh, and executing kind of ability and much more about coming to consensus I think the government experience kind of 
<laughs> like it was like like cold water because everything in government is my consent. I think if you have the ability to serve in some capacity, that could be nonprofit, that could be in a presidential appointment like I was, it could be in a city, in a council, who knows? It definitely changes your perspective and it's changed mine. It changed mine because for two reasons. One, for what you said, that that there is a difference in being autocratic or persuasive versus consensus building. And, cons and in reality, yeah, I mean, companies say they like consensus and boards and whatever, but majority rules. That's how the, that's how Wall Street works. It's such a fine balance, right? Because it is. when you're, especially when you're at a small business, like this is what I'm really having to learn how to develop, mm -hmm. is when you have almost nothing in the bank and you know, or you think you know, this is the decision, like we have to go this way, but you also still have to respect and listen to your team members and not have that automatic, no, that doesn't work, move on, we're going this way. But you also like, that's also not how you build a, uh, an effective team. That's how you build an autocracy, mm -hmm. um, which gets you, which can get you to a million. It might get you to 10 million. The outliers, like more of a, an Apple type of thing, you get to very well. But like, I don't know if it's effective and it's a skill set I, I have to develop and that, you know, to grow this to not just like five people, you know, probably call it 50 plus is probably the end state. Um, you can't do that unless you develop that skill set of really wanting to listen to others. I think there's an intellectual honesty that goes with uh, the ability to persuade a group of people to your point of view because it may be that they prove you wrong and that's healthy because they proved you wrong and you took a better path it also if they don't prove you wrong and you were right then you sort of show that you know stuff so I think it's a win there's no downside to actually consensus building is very very difficult uh, but that skill back to your question about the government thing yeah it's very hard and sometimes very frustrating but the end product meant everybody had buy-in do you think everybody that's more effective when you have that level of change that can happen at the government level do you think that's the most effective model is a consensus-driven model? Not necessarily. I think that, not necessarily. I mean, sometimes, well, you, you use Apple as an example. When, when they introduced the iPhone, uh, when Steve Jobs yeah. introduced the iPhone, what phones were doing back then was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and thinner and thinner and thinner. So he knew somehow, mostly because he, he was a genius, that what people wanted not was what people in a focus group may say is that I want a smaller phone and whatever, but in reality, what people wanted was a computer in their, in their pocket. And that meant a bigger phone. So he actually decided to do something that nobody else would have agreed with, even inside of Apple, if you read the stories. Um, and that's a great example about consensus building is a good exercise. It's probably sometimes not the best way to arrive at decisions. And sometimes, there's a urgency that you can't uh, go that path. There's sometimes a, a actual structural reason why you will never get consensus, right? In the case of, uh, of pension 
pension boards, you purposely stack the boards with like a union member, a management member, a government appointment member, and those, the interests of those things are sometimes very hard. But in the government, while, while representative you know, government and, and federal, the federal democracy this is, we're not getting to consensus anymore on anything. The polarization is significant. There's hatred, there's all this stuff. But the job of that deliberative body is to actually find some kind of middle ground. And to find middle ground, consensus, you gotta compromise. So I think before you get to consensus, you gotta know what to give on, what to take on, and that's, a, that's an art. Can you give us uh, some insight into your experience through the SBIC program mm -hmm. And executing on the agenda you and your team wanted, um, how would you characterize the level of consensus for mm -hmm. that, and if things were done? So it's a good it's a good question, um, and I think that the current administration is actually almost exactly the opposite when it comes to deliber deliberation and thought behind policy and stuff. Like, I'm not going to say they're shooting off the cuff. It seems like sometimes they are, but let's leave that aside. Uh, it's a much more top-down, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And in the case of what I experienced, and I sat on a bunch of white, like the White House FinTech Committee, the White House Innovation Committee, the White House Rural Investing Committee, like all kinds of interesting multi-government agency committees, um, the, because the boss was so deliberative and so thought-driven, the president, that seeped down into, into the organization. The so it was... So, but I think, you know, in retrospect, I think it was healthy because you ended up with, you may disagree or agree with the policies, but the process, by the time there. it got to policy or to a change in statute, you knew that it was, it was or, exactly, um, and it was, in, it, it appropriately included people that need to be included without being dragging through like so slow it feels like molasses and just nothing is getting done. Um, I mean, there were, there were cases, there were things like, I'll tell you a specific example that was really cool. So you know demo days that accelerators yeah. and incubators do? Yeah. So we decided to do a White House demo day and that was a collaboration with, you know, the National Economic Council, like offices that advise the president directly and some of the agencies that have to do something with the economy, including mine. And White House demo day, how it was structured, how many companies came, who was invited and all this stuff, like everybody had a say in it. And that process, that sausage making was brain damaging sometimes. We were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But at the end, what what ended up uh, you know, coming to life was actually something that everyone for the most part had bought into. So I think there's a, I saw, I mean, I, I didn't work inside the White House when I worked with the White House a lot. Um, and the same with Congress. I think Congress is an even different animal because at the end of the day, that's kind of the board of directors. Yeah. The hundred senators and the board, of, that's kind of the board of directors representing the interests of the whole country. There you never get con consensus. Even the same party, even caucuses within the party. And all this stuff I'm talking about now, I learned while I was in there. I knew nothing about how this stuff worked. I learned a lot, very hard. Um, but uh, even there, you had like guiding principles around what made good policy which became law and what bills got to the floor and all that stuff. I think now for a lot of reasons <laughs> that I don't think we should get into, that's very, very, very different. Uh, 
and I think it's to the detriment of our citizens. That's really interesting insight. So to kind of change the topic and to kind of wrap it up, a very, I think the most important question this entire time together, what would be your walkout song? <laughs> uh, well, it's the, actually a song I've been listening over and over and over again, Pendulum by Pearl Jam. A big shout out to BDA Partners, my former employer, you and Relly, for letting us come into their office today. Uh, BDA Partners is a global investment bank with over 10 offices. I was there for over six years and like my life truly changed uh, because of working with BDA for six years. Um, so thank you for changing my life and also giving me a shot. Uh, hiring this English teacher <laughs> um, and just thank you for just saying yes immediately to have us come in the conference room and be here for an hour and a half. That's it. Thanks a lot, Yoon. <laughs>